this way comes something, something different, something different, something different. This way comes something, something different, something different. Welcome to the Food Futures edition of Something Different. This way comes conversations to ease my climate anxiety and Today I'm talking to Brendan Grant of Sleepy G Farm in Pass Lake. Sleepy G Farm is a certified, organic, pretty big and very productive farm that primarily sells market vegetables, but also has chickens and, and cows. Sleepy G Farm sells some of the food they produce through local businesses. Sometimes they'll spot them, and, and they do have a farm gate for sales, but mostly they sell through community-supported agriculture. People buy a farm share before the harvest and get a share of the harvest every week. Brendan also writes a newsletter to give insight into the realities of food production, each one examining a topic about food or, or farming from a personal or political or philosophical perspective. And I look forward to reading every one of them. I look forward to this conversation. Brendan and his wife, Marcel Pollen, are generous with their time and their expertise. They teach a great gardening course we've taken twice through Roots to Harvest. They speak at conferences. They're leaders in several national and regional farm organizations. They are informal mentors to many, including us and my family and our farming efforts. I am just a, a big fan. My respect for Brendan and Marcel and just the joy I get from their way of doing what they do, it keeps growing. Pardon the pun. So I'm pumped to share this conversation with you today. Now last week, if you listened to last week's episode, Aaron Beagle from Roots to Harvest assured me that we could eat nothing but local in Thunder Bay. That we have the capacity. So let's talk to a farmer. We're going to get Brendan's take on that. Also, well, this is about climate change. Climate change is about carbon emissions. So how does farming contribute? How might it contribute less? Maybe even capture more carbon than it costs, even as it feeds us all. I mean, farming, it's crucial to every bite you eat, excepting your hunted game and, and wild harvest. But every family meal, every dinner out, every sip and swallow is thanks to a farmer talk about an essential issue to address. Also, climate change, you know, what's already happened because of what we've already done, is about changing weather patterns, less predictable weather, more extremes, and no job is more tied to the weather than farming. So there is lots to talk about. Brendan Grant, welcome to Something Different This Way Comes. Thanks for having me. This is pretty pretty cool. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. So you you didn't grow up here. You came here for school, you went away, and you came back and chose to not just live here but farm here. So I want to start there. Why here? Um, well, I just really liked Thunder Bay. I came here for school, and then I left for about four years to go to BC where I was farming and kind of learning the trade. And for a long time, I thought I would you know, settle in BC. Um, in terms of farming, I realized it was out of, out of reach, you know, financially just couldn't buy a piece of land there that was close enough to a population center to, to make a viable farm. Um, 
you know, and the other thing too, in BC, it's a really dramatic landscape, but it's also unstable, you know, earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, uh, landslides, all these things are quite common throughout the province. Uh, and so I spent, of course, four years here in Thunder Bay going to school and I liked it a lot. I loved the area and I thought, well, that's as good a place as any. And um, yeah, so that's what kind of brought me back here. Well, we got the name Thunder Bay. You'd think we'd have some dramatic weather to, you know, talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the name's a bit of a misnomer, but you know, the other thing that did draw me back was the fact that I did have some concern about, you know, a warming climate and all the uncertainty that, you know, no one had any answers. And I'm not sure we really have too many great answers now even. But I thought, well, Thunder Bay is about as stable a place you can get. Uh, there's, you know, earthquakes are not going to happen. You couldn't get any further from the ocean if you tried. A naturally buffered uh, piece of geography. Yeah, we're sitting on the Canadian Shield. That's a lot of rock. And we're in the biggest lake, which is a lot of lake effect. Yeah, and the lake is really a moderator. It's kind of like a, it's just like, it's like a buffer. And we see that here even now on this farm. In the summertime, locations further inland than we are here on this farm get quite a bit hotter than they do here. But then at nighttime, their temperatures drop more. So the lake is just kind of like this heat sink, this energy sink that tends to moderate temperature. That's so cool. I mean, I never thought of this area as being a, a ideally situated. I think of us more as being kind of cold and north for growing. And I'm sure there are definitely challenges. There's no such thing as the perfect growing place. But I'm, I'm glad you came and I'm glad you stayed. <laughs> and I'm really glad you're farming here. Um, I want to pick your brains a bit about being a farmer because... You're like the nerdiest farmer I know. Like you really love to, you can always tell me what you've been reading about lately or interested in or following up on. Um, so what I've been reading about is climate change. And, and whenever they mention agriculture, they worry about it being a major contributor to carbon. So tell me, like how, how is that true? Farming is kind of like manufacturing. You know, it's primary production and we use natural resources to make essentially something from nothing. So there's a lot that goes into whatever you're producing on a farm. It's also the most important thing. I mean, shelter and food. There's kind of few things we can opt out of, and that would be one of them. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. You know, farming, <laughs> I've said this a lot of times, that there's really no more important occupation in the world than farming, simply by virtue of the fact that there's no more basic human need than eating. Um, yeah, so there's, uh, there's a lot of impact of farming uh, in Canada, Farming accounts for 12% of all greenhouse gas emissions. And that's uh, broken down by three major greenhouse gases. Of course, carbon dioxide. And that comes from the fuel that we burn in our tractors and transportation of goods to and from the farm, the manufacture of uh, inputs like fertilizers, uh, as well as manufacture of, of the equipment that we use on the farm. That's the main contributors of, of CO2. The other one is nitrous oxide, which has to do with the, the nitrogen in the soil and, and just soil chemistry. And uh, by far, the largest contributor there is with synthetic nitrogen fertilizer uh, and, and some of the volatility and off-gassing of, of that. Uh, and then the, finally, the other uh, major greenhouse gas that is produced by farms is methane. And some of that is from the decomposition of manure in our manure piles. But uh, by far, the vast majority of the methane emissions come from uh, cattle. 
what part of cattle? I remember this because I came to a farm tour and you told me it's not so much their farts as their burps. <laughs> yeah, it's a very scientific way of putting it. Uh, the, the scientific way of putting it is uh, enteric fermentation. So cattle are ruminants. They're an amazing species. Uh, there's a few others in the world that can take uh, plant material that is otherwise not digestible. I mean, even cellulose and uh, in concert with the microbes in their four uh, stomach digestive system are able to actually extract nutrients out of you know, feedstuffs that you know shouldn't sustain anyone. <laughs> but because of that, uh, the inside of a cow's stomach is anaerobic and the uh, microbes that digest and break down those feeds, they basically off-gas methane burps. Yep. <laughs> so what you're saying, though, I'm hearing little understories, like um, inputs that are chemical and as opposed to rotting manure and nitrogen-based fertilizers. Carrot's not a carrot's not a carrot, right? So there's no way of farming that's completely clean, just like there's no way of living that's completely clean. We are carbon-based creatures. Um, but there are ways to mitigate how much you are contributing to climate issues and, and carbon emission. And you guys are practicing some of those, a lot of them. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head. There's, there's no best way to farm that is not going to impact the planet. Uh, and I think that in the future, now that the science is catching up and there's a real will among farmers to, to be carbon neutral and, and to really work towards uh, better practices, I think we're going to see some pretty, some pretty awesome farms in the future that are going to be able to produce food for the masses while having a very, very minimal impact on the land. You give me a left-hand turn there. It was just as I drove over to see you, listening to a podcast out of BC, and they were talking about all of the forest gardens that they're just starting to recognize were a part of many of the First Nations of North America, where they just found a way to build within the bush a space that self-perpetuated, that took some care, but mainly just leveraged the way that, that things tend to grow. So you'd have a place to go to get a maximum harvest. And it does remind me of this idea that there is an experiment that maybe went awry. After the Second World War, how can we grow more food more efficiently by chem applying chemistry that we developed for warfare? That's my, my really basic understanding yeah, of it. And, and we tried it, and now we're realizing that maybe was not uh, the whole be-all and end-all. There are other wisdoms out there we should be turning to. Yeah, so what you're alluding to is w what was later coined as the Green Revolution, which is a bit of a misnomer, but it's essentially when they synthesized nitrogen for munitions in, in the war. Uh, when the war ended, they realized that, you know, the, the thought was nitrogen is nitrogen is nitrogen, whether it is naturally occurring or organically uh, processed or if it's chemically processed or synth synthesized, it's still the prime nutrient needed for plant growth. It was so called the Green Revolution because uh, when that synthetic nitrogen fertilizer hit farms, productivity skyrocketed and farms became much, much more productive per acre than they were in previous decades. That also, you know, when farms are more productive, food becomes cheaper and it also enables population growth. So that that's a very long story. That's a, definitely worthy of its entire episode in itself, you know, how that unfolded and um, how we're, we're, that's still playing out today. But there are some changes in like the Green Revolution. Uh, we figured chemistry and nitrogen was nitrogen was nitrogen was a very simple answer to what turned out to be actually a very complicated question. 
and there are some practices that you do here as a sustainable farm that's an organic farm that um, are becoming of more interest and actually gaining, I think, more um, understanding in the broader population of why they work or how they work. So introduce me. Like, what's different and why is it worth doing? Yeah, so the easiest way I can describe organic farming is that, you know, whereas conventional farmers tend to be preoccupied with soil chemistry, organic farmers are preoccupied with soil biology. And that's a, the simplest way I can say that, you know, the, the overarching goal of organic farmers is to, to foster and build a diverse soil microbial population, able to naturally cycle nutrients, even digesting things like bits of granite, which are obviously not plant food, but with the, in the presence of the right uh, microbes, uh, they can kind of break down the granite and break it down into its uh, you know, elemental components. And suddenly silica becomes plant available for the plants to uptake. Calcium would be another example where you know, we, lots of gardeners would uh, have a practice of putting a, a crushed handful of eggshells in with their, with their tomato plant in the spring. Well, tomatoes can't eat the calcium from the eggshells. But if the right bacteria live in that soil and they are able to break down the eggshells and then release the calcium that the tomato needs. So it all comes down to biology. And organic farming is all about soil biology and using the soil microbes to uh, be really high functioning, really diverse, and able to digest the raw ingredients that we put into the soil as farmers. Because we do use fertilizers as well. We just use raw kind of like the raw materials, uh, which uh, take some time to break down, but mostly they take uh, effort on the part of a lot, like literally billions and billions of, of uh, individuals. You're reminding me of the, uh, the cattle farmer who says, I don't raise cattle so much as I grow grass. And you're saying, I don't raise carrots and you know Brussels sprouts so much as I, I have this army of microbes that I'm babying along and making happy. Yeah, that's exactly it. When we add synthetic fertilizers to our soils, we, we basically take work away from the microbes. Okay. And so if they have no work to do, they stop doing the work, the populations decline. So, you know, we talk about a really healthy organic soil is like a living soil. One teaspoon of really organic living soil has about 5 billion microbes in a teaspoon of soil. Like it's just mind blowing. You know, these microbes are also the same microbes that uh, have the ability to take atmospheric nitrogen, which is like 70, what, 8% of our every breath we breathe. And some of these microbes, a certain class of these microbes are able to take atmospheric nitrogen, which is in the pockets of air in the soil, and fix that nitrogen into a physical, soluble, plant-available form along the root system of uh, a certain set of plants, which is the legume family. So, you know, clover, beans, peas, uh, alfalfa. That's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. Uh, if nitrogen fertilizer is our number one agricultural input, nitrogen is like by far the, the dominant gas in the, in the air in our atmosphere, then it begs the question, why would anyone ever pay for nitrogen to grow crops? Uh, but at the end of the day, 
there's no silver bullet in any form of farming, no mode of farming, whether conventional or organic, but uh, definitely the organic method is more of the long game. And the things that I'll be doing on the farm this summer will not necessarily benefit the crops in 2022, but they will hopefully uh, benefit the crops in 2023, 2024. So it's you have to play the long game in this type of agriculture. Um, but it has been my experience in, in the time I've been on this farm that by focusing on building soil life, the soils become healthier, able to better digest uh, nutrients to make and grow healthy plants that are more resistant to pests and are less susceptible to plant disease. Nothing makes you see the stuff in the grocery store as cheap, like trying to grow your own food. Right. And nothing makes you like be blown away by the quality of your food, like trying to grow it yourself. There is a, a huge learning curve to gardening. And if you get it wrong one year, you got to wait a year before you can do that differently and see if, if you figured out how to solve the problem. So it's a very uh, humbling field that you're working in. And you're so generous. I find I keep seeing you popping up over here, sharing what you've learned in one way or another in so many and many parts. How much do you think community is a part of food success? For our farm, community is the center of what we're doing. And, you know, we've been largely quite successful at it. Uh, and as you said, you only get one chance a year to to sharpen your pencil and get better at something. And, you know, over the course of a, a career at farming, 40 attempts at growing a potato crop is really not that many. You know, if you think uh, any other profession, how many homes would a carpenter build in his in his career? How many times would a pianist uh, or any musician practice a song before performing it? A heck of a lot more than 40. <laughs> so it, it's hard to get good fast. And it, again, there's, there's no silver bullets in farming. It's a slow game. Um, one of kind of our founding goals with this farm, with Sleepy G Farm, was to try and be a model to show that you know, small-scale agriculture, small-scale and organic agriculture is viable, it is sustainable. And, you know, we've always thought that if we succeed at it, then it would be the maybe the encouragement that others might need to, to try. And we've always welcomed more people to do what we're doing in this area. You know, I've said it a thousand times before, I would love to see, you know, 10 more farms just like ours in the, in the region. Uh, and I wouldn't see that as competition so much as I'd see it as community. That would be community for me. And then not to mention how much food we would be putting out to the greater Thunder Bay area if there were 10 more farms like this. Yeah, because I want to talk about that. I, I keep going back to after the Second World War and the Green Revolution, which meant that food got cheap, right? And back then, um, I wasn't around, but even in the 70s when I was a kid, we had less stuff. We had smaller houses. We had less cars. Um, we walked more but we spent a lot more of what we made on food. Like food budgeting and food management was just something you had to do because you can't not eat, and it was a big chunk of the budget. And I feel like we're at the opposite end now. Like a lot of people have gotten very used to barely even noticing what they spend on their groceries because it's such a small part of what they're spending money on. So my assumption is if we're going to have good food and if we're going to have food that's coming from places that can that can keep feeding us through all of the weather challenges of a changing climate, uh, we got to be prepared to spend more on it. And if we want our food to come from places that we feel good about how they treat their workers too, we should be prepared to spend more on it and, and figure out how to do that. Um, so here in Thunder Bay, even if we decided we could spend more on it and everybody could afford, could we grow all the food we need? 
I think that you'd be surprised at how much potential this region has. You know, the Thunder Bay District, I think, has about 148,000 people in the district. So that's Thunder Bay proper and all the surrounding communities. I, I can speak very well to vegetable production. Dairy is definitely our biggest uh, agricultural commodity in the district. In fact, far more milk is produced in Thunder Bay District than is consumed in Thunder Bay District. So we're already, you know, already hitting a home run in that way. But I'll speak to vegetable production. And this farm here, we're cropping eight acres of vegetables, which uh, is kind of like on the upper end of a small farm, I would say. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's still a small farm, but it's fairly productive. We could feed probably a thousand individuals year round. If, if all their vegetable came from this farm, there are about a thousand individuals that could eat 12 months a year. So I've, I've done a bit of math on that. So this farm is eight acres of vegetables and we have about five full-time staff. So that basically means that the work of one farm worker is producing food for 200 eaters. So in the Thunder Bay district with about 148,000 people, we would need about roughly 1,200 acres of vegetables uh, in order to feed the whole district. You know, and I should also note that our farm is not the most efficient in terms of... uh, you know, our yield per acre. There are definitely farming systems that are quite a bit more uh, productive. So yeah, so that 1,200 acres is a, is definitely a, a ballpark, a rough guess, but... How many people farm in Thunder Bay area now? I don't know. How many more might it take for us to feed everybody? Well, again, just to focus it back on vegetables, because I can really only speak to that, but using that metric of 1,200 acres to feed Thunder Bay District, we're looking at about 775 farm workers. Which, you know, now we're talking about having an industry. This is a career opportunity, a career path that maybe your guidance counselor is is mentioning when you're coming out of high school. Um, and that's just vegetables. I mean, there's, of course, still the dairy. There's the meat. There are uh, grains. There are, there are other agricultural commodities. Yeah, so that's, a, again, a very long-winded way of saying Thunder Bay District has a lot more agricultural potential than you think it is a lot more possible than you might think. If we really had to, and we really had the will to, to feed ourselves, uh, I believe it could be done. I know I talked to my boys about this, and they lit up at the thought that they could be part of a generation that 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 built things, you know, that, that created things that were valued in our community and that were, that were tactile or right in front of us, like more farmland, producing more food that they then ate. Um, and when I said, yeah, but... They love bananas, for instance, uh, things we won't be able to get anymore or things that we'll have to pay more for um, or not on, only eat in season because they don't keep very well and all those sorts of things. They're like, bah, you know, whatever, because they were really excited to be part of that idea of of building. Uh, what are your hopes for, for the next generation, for the next 20, 30 years, for your kid in this land? What are your thoughts? Well, I'd like to I'd like to see I'd like to see a, a regional food system actually be developed in a in a concerted uh, and funded and directed way you know we we talk about i'm actually a little bit i have fatigue around talking about food security because that whole conversation is entirely academic until we start putting more farmers on the ground and actually doing the work that we're all talking about you don't attain food security at, at the university level you, you you attain food security or achieve it rather at the field level and that means having a lot of people wanting to do this work. Now, that's easier said than done because guess what? This is not the most lucrative work in our society. 
and it's capital expensive. You talked. You moved here because you thought you could afford a farm. That's a lot of land. That's not easy, no matter how cheap it is compared to other places. No. And uh, I actually now, we've been on this farm since 2005. So uh, in the you know, 16, 17 years, I am absolutely floored with how much money we've spent on this farm in order to, to get the equipment and the infrastructure in place to do what we do and still you know, scrape out a very, very modest living. So the amount of capital it, to farm, whether it, any type of farming operation is very capital intensive. Farming is a very expensive business to run. Um, and not profitable. So that's a problem. Yes, it is a problem. <laughs> and so this is this is why uh, we have reduced ourselves to uh, kind of an export commodity agriculture in Canada, where there are fewer farmers, but larger farms. Um, and I'm speaking mostly to uh, Western Canada, where you, you know, see a handful of different commodity crops, you know, not necessarily food crops, but crops that are ingredients for food that are grown on a very large scale um, and then exported globally where they're processed and turned into a food product that then gets imported back uh, to our grocery store shelves and then we, we purchase that. Yeah, so my hope is that we can actually make real progress towards developing regional food systems. You know, now in light of the challenges we face today and even with, you know, the pandemic shedding some real uh, shaking our, our supply chain and, and really kind of making things real for us, there is no longer any reason to deny the fact that we should be concurrently developing a regional food system in addition to continuing to export uh, certain food crops. But that food sovereignty conversation is it's happening at the consumer level. It's happening at those that want to see change, but it's not actually happening at a government level and in, in any government level. And this this movement, the local food movement, the I would even say at this point, even the climate action movement is 100 percent consumer driven. And until we get the government to to start taking action and putting funds towards it and and they really need to be the ones to um, to help kind of organize the effort like I said, a concerted effort towards building a very practical, functioning regional food system. You're making me think of two things. I was just listening to uh, a man who wrote a book called How Did uh, Solar Power Get So Cheap? And he was an academic who'd been sitting there trying to crunch the numbers a hundred different ways to crunch numbers. And he got some information, but it wasn't adding up because it had dropped so fast. So then he finally got a grant to go and talk to actual human beings where they live and get to know them. And what he found out is it was relationships, it was policies, and it was international collaboration. So business owners, human beings would say, I had this thought, and somebody else would say, you know, maybe if you use this instead of this, I hear it's surplus right now over in this place, that would make it make sense as a business plan. And then somebody somewhere else says, oh, I hear there's an opportunity to make this something that we're leaders in. They change the policy, they put some funding in. So suddenly things that we thought would never get affordable went 10,000%. Like they're, a, a, you take a lot of zeros off to get how much cheaper solar was. So just the power of, of listening to people and, and, and empowering them policy-wise shoots out of the park a lot of possibilities. I think it's like a teeter-totter. Like if we, we just need to get that apex and get a little bit of, of support here and maybe a lot of change could happen because people know what should be done. That's not the mystery. Yeah, and you know, the, the deep pockets of the world 
have a real knack for making stuff happen as soon as you monetize it. So, you know, you look at, again, uh, the pandemic in the last two years, that even one vaccine, let alone a number of vaccines were produced in you know record time. That's a testament to the fact that, you know, obviously the world came together to try and to stop the bleeding, if, as it were. But there was also money to be made. I mean, I think that the change can happen quickly as soon as the deep pockets of the world suddenly have the incentive. And, you know, that incentive usually comes through government policy. So that's where the government has to step in. They just have to make the policy, which creates an opportunity in the business world. And then things start to happen pretty quickly. And we are the ones, you know, who like them. So the more people talk about what they'd like to see, the better the odds somebody thinks that's a good idea to make it happen, I guess. I can hope. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, I actually think, though, that getting back to this regional food system thing that I've I've been thinking about this for a long, long time. And, you know, I actually think that it needs to start with at the regional level. I think that. I think that the longer we wait for the government to come in and save us on that front and develop this regional food system that is sustainable and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're, we're going to be waiting a long time. I think we need to just quit complaining and make it happen ourselves and set the example. And, and all of a sudden, you know, governments tend to be a little bit behind the curve when they see that there's a, a swell of support in a certain direction. Well, they, they can move pretty quickly when they see it, but they first need to see it. Cause that makes me think of the other things. So I was talking to, uh, to uh, uh, Sharla Robinson from the Chamber of Commerce about COVID-19 and how it hit local business. And I said, so afterwards, like after, as you're ch crunching the numbers and looking at how people were affected and, and how they managed to, to go through or what brought them down, um, what would you like to see happen? Are there any thoughts about what we could do now so that we're more resilient next time a left-hand curve comes flying through our community. And I was ready for her to talk about, you know, policies and funding and structures and, you know, because she's, she's, she would know, she could imagine. And instead she said relationships. She said, I think people realized how much we can get done when we just turn to our neighbor, we talk to the person who's doing something similar to us, we ask each other for help and we provide help when asked and amazing resilience happens and she's seeing it in so many unexpected ways. I was gobsmacked. Yeah. 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 We need to somehow figure out how to come together and, and build a regional food system. We don't have to solve the problems today, but I just love to hear what's going on in your head is if I could snap my finger and just change something that I think would help us in many ways, would it be this regional food system? Yeah. If I could snap my finger, the change would be to implement a uh, food system tax. Ah, what is that? Well, so far it's just in my head, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, if every household in the Thunder Bay district were taxed, uh, you know, I, I know here in, in, in uh, Sibley Township, we have three components to my tax bill. There's the uh, Ontario land tax, the Lakehead school board tax, and then our local roads board tax. Throw another one in there. It's called the food system tax. And let's say it's $100 per year. Well, there's uh, 70,000 private dwellings in the district of Thunder Bay. So there's $7 million per year that would come into a fund and that fund would be used to develop a local or regional food system. And the funds would be awarded to farmers on a cost share basis um, or grant basis for infrastructure, new products, any systems that would 
work towards the goal of making a truly functioning regional food system. And so the way I would envision it is that farmers within the Thunder Bay District could apply each year for some grant funding to make an improvement on their farm that helps to lower their emissions or to start solving a problem that is identified for that region. The administrators of the fund would look at each application on a merit basis and award it on uh, how closely the project aligned with the already identified threats or goals for that specific region. So let's say that the Thunder Bay region in the future is very prone to drought. Okay. We did have horrible droughts the last few years. Yeah, the last two years and last summer specifically was the worst I've ever seen. I think it's the worst maybe anyone has ever seen. And let's say that that's going to be the new reality going forward. Then uh, with this food system tax and, you know, the monies would be awarded preferentially to farmers who are making actions that will make their farms more resilient in a drought situation. You know, this would be an annually occurring fund of money that would grow and grow and would be used directly in the community to build the food system that we need. And I should say that, you know, it would uh, only be eligible to farms and food systems that are direct marketing and are actually feeding that community. I would see it being uh, somewhat counterproductive to be using those funds to bolster production that is leaving the region. That doesn't seem in line with it. But again, getting back to my comments about Canada being a you know, Canada's agriculture is mostly an export commodity agriculture model. And it's almost wholly that, in fact. And the, the domestic food production in Canada is very token at this point. You know, and when I say domestic food production for feeding domestic eaters. And we just need to, to just balance that out a bit more. So we're still participating in the global export commodity racket. We're also producing more food for people who are going to eat it you know, in the country that it was produced. I'm not totally convinced you want to keep that racket in the whole game. <laughs> you can see why we don't leave things suddenly. You don't turn off the tab, but but I don't feel entirely convinced that you really have great faith in the racket. Well, I don't. I mean, obviously, I'm a bit cynical about it um, because it just that what that has done is is commodified food. Food has become just a, a commodity of no worth. Actually, the worth is dictated by the highest bidder at that day, you know, and that is wrong. That's why our relationship to food in North America is so poor as a society is that we don't value food, you know, and as you said, growing up uh, in generations that grew up in, you know, prior to the 1960s, uh, food, the budget, the household budget that went towards feeding the family was, you know, 30% or better. Today in Canada, it's less than 9%. So, you know, you could translate that as saying, well, food is, we care about it one third as much as we used to, you know, because what you pay for something is usually pretty indicative of how much you, you value it. So, yeah, the export agricultural commodity is very much about commodifying food, which only uh, devalues it. And it is destructive to our relationship with food. And it is counterproductive to recruiting people to enter the industry to continue to produce the food that we all rely on. So it's it's terribly destructive. Because <laughs> I remember the first time, the first time I met you was at a Slow Food Thunder Bay dinner, right? And I'm, I, you taught me things I had never thought about before, uh, even as somebody who loves to eat, 
right? And thought I was a little bit of a, a little bit of a nerd, a little bit of a, you know, I knew a few things about food. I knew nothing, right? And it was this whole idea of if we, if we make food an important part of who we are and how we do what we do, if we make meals an opportunity to connect and to celebrate and to deepen our culture, if we make, um, I'm getting teary-eyed. <laughs> I am, but because I think that there's a real truth there that, 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 that food as calories is besides the point. Um, then we can, we can really change a lot of things. I dream of, of a community where we grow more of our own food. We all know what it takes to grow food. Like we have a much more visceral understanding of, of where our food comes from and what its real value is. And we share food more. Like that's one of the things I love when I, when I go and see you guys and you're handing out your baskets of food. You have a relationship with every single family and they hold the food that you've made for them like a gift. It's not like, oh, here's my, I bought this because it's cheap in the grocery store. It's a completely different relationship. And I have to, th it gives me hope. I have to thank you for you guys and the way you do what you do. I think it's like alchemy. You know, you're, you're, you're feeding us in so many ways because of the value you're giving to this centerpiece of life. Um, but what gives, what gives you hope? What feeds your hope? Uh, well, <laughs> my hope around uh, climate change, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, I think that, I think you've said some really nice things about our relationship with food and, you know, food is the act of eating is, it's like life's most simple pleasure. And it's something you can do like multiple times a day and it should be done with those who you love and care for. And, you know, the food that you eat, you know, it should taste good, but you should also feel good about how it was growing and where it came from uh, because food is actually the most impactful of all of our purchase in the world. Food is probably the most impactful purchase we make and it's the one we make the most often. So it's the one that has the biggest impact. Uh, you know, when you purchase a tomato from the grocery store or you buy, you know, whatever you buy to put it, you know, for food, that's a vote that you're, you're casting for the world you want to live in. And so you know, I think that my hope is that people will start to realize that food, it, there's like nothing more important going on in this world than food and eating. I mean, yeah, we got to go to work and we got to do all the things that we got to do. But at the end of the day, food is food is number one. And, you know, nothing connects us more to the land than food, because, as I said earlier, Nothing is more destructive to the land than producing food, um, or potentially destructive anyway. So we have a lot. We have a lot to gain by how we farm, how we choose to farm, and how we choose the food that we choose to buy. Um, I'll tell you one story from your farm that you told me recently that gave me hope, which is you guys introduced a sliding scale for your members, and you said, you know, here's here's what we need to average per basket. And you can pay more or less according to your needs, totally your own business. This is, this is a private decision. Um, but the results of that offer gave me hope. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think that we, we wanted to make our, we always want to make our food to be accessible to, not just for families who have the ability to spend extra. It should be available to everyone. Uh you know, and I think that there's this wide, wide uh, misconception that local food or organic food necessarily costs more. 
15, 20 years ago, that was true. But today, I don't think that's very true anymore. I know what we, we charge for our food and I know what it costs in the grocery store. There's almost no difference. Sometimes our food is even cheaper and sometimes it's maybe only 15% more. So uh, food costs more money. It is going up. It is going up. You know, the pressures of today with war and disease and everything else, food is going up. So what's not going up uh, suddenly is the cost of production at the local scale. My input costs are going up most certainly, but they're not going up uh, at the same crazy rate that we're seeing uh, everything else inflate in our society today. So that's a way of saying that there's now really no excuse not to buy local if it's available to you because it's not it's not a monetary thing. It pretty much costs the same. And by doing so, you are feeding your family with a lower carbon footprint. You are developing a relationship with someone who has who has some accountability for, for providing you that food. And uh, yeah. I had to bring you back to so that experiment. You guys announced, okay, guys, you can pay less, you can pay more, it's up to you. And the next newsletter, you're like, hello, does anybody want to pay less? I have more, lots more mores than I have less. To me, that that was beautiful. That was an illustration of the people that are members. They value you, and they want more people getting this good food. And they were more than willing to pay a premium to help make that happen. That's that's a beautiful thing. That gives me hope for our future. Yeah, and you know, food is community. Like you said, whether you're you know sharing food with people who have stopped by, um, or you're sitting down to your Sunday dinner with your family, food is community. And our farm has really made intentional steps in in recent years, especially to make the farm about community. So we we came up with the sliding scale as a way to say, you know members of this community are going to support other members of the community who, who maybe want the food but can't afford it because, you know, loss of job or a change in income. There's no reason why they should get ousted from the community by simply because of a financial, you know, situation. Um, and it's it's great. We're, we're very excited about it. And this year we're also, we've uh, struck a, a, a fundraising committee from our CSA community uh, with members who have come forward and will be planning a fundraising event and the funds will be donated to, um, you know, a cause of their choosing in the Thunder Bay area um, that will hopefully improve our community. And uh, it's just the fact that, you know, this farm is, is kind of like the convening point or the hub of making that work happen. It's, it's pretty neat. So my podcast is about climate. So tell me about the climate, the changes you've seen um, in in Thunder Bay and the adaptations you've witnessed or you think are related to climate uncertainty among farmers in the area. Well, I think that we're seeing a lot more volatile springs, especially. Uh, we can have really, really wet and cold springs and we're seeing precipitation events that are just more extreme, you know, so there the the gentle summer rain <laughs> is more like a uh, a torrent uh, of of water that comes down at an inopportune time. Uh, so, like a four inch of rain uh, precipitation event is is pretty uh, pretty devastating, no matter what time of year it happens. So, we're just seeing more and more of that. Um, and then, of course, this past two summers, we've seen extreme drought. This last summer, twenty twenty one, was absolutely dry so these are the extremes that 
are they are the hallmark of climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some things that we've seen farmers do in the region, rotational grazing, so cattle that are moved in a very orchestrated way across the grazing land. It does a bunch of things. It actually improves the grass rather than uh, degrades it as they're grazing it off and then they're moving on to another piece and letting the land recover. It helps to build the soil organic matter on the pastures and then that land is better able to absorb the extreme downpours that we have. Uh, Conversely, when we have an extreme drought, then that soil with the higher soil organic matter can retain moisture and, and sustain plants longer. So we're seeing, uh, we're seeing some farmers really make efforts towards uh, developing better rotation, like grazing rotations and having success with that in the face of drought. Uh, we're also seeing you know, fertilizer prices have absolutely gone crazy in the last year. You know, the synthetic fertilizers have for virtually no, no good reason have more than doubled in price. So that really put a pinch on uh, conventional farmers trying to continue what they're doing. And it's definitely piqued people's interest in uh, an organic method and, uh, and how we can feed our plants uh, with less inputs. We're also seeing um, in Thunder Bay in the last few years, we've seen more no-till uh, planting. So uh, this is a, a mode of production that uh, disturbs the soil less and is able to establish a crop without, uh, you know, so much tillage, which, uh, of course, uh, is a great way to lose soil moisture. And there's a lot of other damaging things that happen with tillage. Does tillage, like when you when you peel open the, the soil, lay it all bare um, before you plant your seeds, does that contribute to, um, besides moisture loss, carbon being added to the air in any way or is that just a totally different thing no actually so carbon is released when soil organic matter decomposes co2 is released so as we see soil organic matter decrease in our soils then the effect is that we're seeing an increase in release of co2 into the atmosphere so uh excessive tillage is a prime culprit of uh lowered soil organic matter uh, which is why the no-till uh, movement has really taken traction because it it uh, it, it reduces the tillage and reduces uh, soil organic matter loss. How about the drought? Did it get more people thinking about irrigation or water management? Absolutely. You know, I think uh, Thunder Bay traditionally has had a pretty good water regime where water seems to come at a predictable time and in predictable and sufficient quantity, more or less. Uh, but I think last summer there was a lot of farmers who were looking at, uh, you know, digging out ponds, uh, figuring out ways of, uh, of stockpiling water or retaining water. All right. So now we're talking myths. If there's a myth about farming and climate change that you could bust, what would it be? Uh, I think the number one myth for me personally is that a, a plant-based diet is the answer to the climate crisis you're a, you're a veggie grower right but I'm also a meat eater and I I know a lot about farming and I know enough to know that it's not so simple that just going a plant-based diet is the the key is the answer I think the intention in that way is it's good intention uh, the movement has really grown in popularity surely it's been aided in uh, some pretty good advertising and greenwashing in our media 
But you know, what it comes down to is it's, it's not so much about what you eat, a plant-based diet or an omnivorous diet. It's about how that food is being produced. The question needs to be answered, at least for on the individual level, what is better to eat? A Beyond Meat burger that is plant-based, that was produced with uh, GMO crops that are grown in a conventional system, or a beef burger that was produced on a farm where they're using managed intensive grazing and they're actually capturing CO2 and locking into the soil and fighting climate change by grazing cattle. Because cattle are actually one of the most important tools that farmers have and only farmers have to fight climate change. Cattle are actually these amazing creatures who, if they're managed properly, can have a net positive effect on climate change by grazing off grass, stimulating growth. Plants need CO2 to grow. So when the cow comes across and takes a nip off of the plant and then they're moved off of that plant onto a new fresh piece of ground, the plant recovers, captures sunlight, it breathes in the CO2 that goes down into its root system and is stored in and is locked into the soil. This is how you can take carbon out of the atmosphere through farming. And only farming has that ability. Farming is Canada's, contributes 12% of Canada's uh, greenhouse gases is one of our kind of top contributors, but it's the only of the top contributors that also has the ability, if managed differently, to diminish greenhouse gas emissions. So getting back to that myth that a plant-based diet is is the, the be-all and the end-all of fighting climate change, to me, that's just um, that's just not being informed. It's a little bit of information is a dangerous thing. Yeah. And, you know, farming is a complex... I don't expect the average person to understand farming systems. It is a very complex world. But, you know, again, getting back to, uh, you know, we have a strong aversion in our household towards, uh, you know, GMOs in our food system. So genetically modified organisms are mostly nine out of 10 times have been genetically altered in order to withstand the application of glyphosate or Roundup, which is the most common herbicide in North America. So this is a really great thing if you want to establish a crop, plant a crop, um, and then the crop will grow in the spring and, and the weeds will grow among it. But then you're able to go in and spray the herbicide on the crop and it'll burn, it'll kill off everything but the genetically modified crop that was altered to withstand that application. It's uh, good weed control with less passes on the field with a tractor, uh, less diesels being burned to, to, to produce that crop. I can see why it's been, it's been the silver bullet of our modern ag movement in, in the last, well, since the 1990s. But there's a downside to it. You know, uh, there's the downside potentially of introducing genetically modified organisms into our food system and into our bodies and the residue of glyphosate that is inherently uh, going to be brought into our bodies through that. Uh, and then, of course, the impact on the ecosystem, you know, uh, with natural pollinators and soil biology. And, you know, it's just um... so that, again, is a very long way of answering you know, is it better to eat a Beyond Meat burger that is made with plant crops that were grown in that way? Or is it better to eat just a good old-fashioned beef burger that was raised on a farm where the cows were actually used to sequester carbon from the atmosphere and lock it into the soil and cycle nutrients through their urine and the manure and, uh, and create biodiversity in the soil? 
So it's, again, it's not about what the food is that you're eating. It's about how that food was being produced. And I think that is really the question that people, consumers, if they care, really need to start thinking about uh, with their food purchases and choices. Because as I said earlier, every food purchase is a vote for the world you want to live in. Love it. Thanks, Brendan. You're welcome. This has been fun. (laughs) Something different this way comes something. Something different. Something different. Brendan Grant and his wife, Marcel Pollen, own Sleepy G Farm in Pass Lake. Next time you're driving to Sleeping Giant Park or Silver Islet, I recommend taking a left and visiting their farm gate shop. Check the place out. I think it'll give you hope. There's so much to think about in that conversation. The chemical nitrogen green revolution is seeding ground to the billions of microbial beings babying organic revolution. 1,200 acres, 775 workers, to feed everyone in the greater Thunder Bay area year-round. That sounds doable. I mean, farming is capital expensive and hard. You need expertise and savvy and investment. You need land. But not that much land, really. If we, as a community, could commit the capital and gather the expertise, I think we could find 1,200 acres people are willing to lend to this good cause to start. I mean, okay, here's a little more math. A quarter section is 160 acres. That's a quarter mile by a quarter mile, a little less than a a kilometer square. That was the size of your basic homestead in the settler days. It's the size of a lot of properties around here. Now, most of the quarter sections in this area are mostly bush, but there are many fallow acres owned by non-farmers and farmers alike. A lot more than 1,200 acres that we could transform in pretty short order. Be kind of like victory gardens of the Second World War. Less mowing, more growing, you know. And, I mean, there's a lot of people who could do this work. I took a book out of the library just before COVID shut the library down, so I had it for a long time, and I read it very, very well. It's called Peach Fuzz and Onion Skins, Memories of Ontario Farmats by Bonnie Sitter and Shirley Ann English. And it documents a federal program that started up during the Second World War that I had never heard of before, really. It apparently continued for several years after the war was over, helping farmers get the help that they needed by engaging young women mostly women from the cities, almost exclusively from the cities. Students that were doing well enough in school to be excused from end-of-year exams and sometimes the first weeks of school. Through this program, they got a chance to travel outside the neighborhood that had been their whole world. You know, kids from Timmins might go and help farmers in Thunder Bay, and, and kids from Emo might go help farmers in Niagara Falls. They earned money. They learned skills. They built friendships. Many actually discovered their passion because, you know, farming is, is really motivated by passion, not by a, a, a pursuit of profits. And they became farmers. And then as kids, they got to help Canada's food sovereignty be saved. When so many farmhands were at war and many did not return from that war, 
Or if they did survive, they needed some time to heal or, or could no longer do what they usually do. There were veterans who chose to take advantage of government programs, granting them free tuition if they wanted a university education or a head start to build a city house. So things were challenging farming for a good decade. And though we had the capacity to grow all the food we need, we were having the trouble of meeting that capacity until we solved the problem of workers. So these farmettes, they saved the day. The federal program organized things so that they, they had somewhere to stay, they had food to eat, and uh, they could easily get to the work. They could be assured of fair wages, safety, some supervision. And the farmers could hire who they needed when they needed them. It was a pool of workers system. It was a shared resource. So you need the land, and I think that's doable. You need farmers who know what work needs doing and how to do it, the experts. We got those. You need workers. A bit of structure. Maybe some infrastructure. You need to be willing to pay fair and be safe. It all sounds doable. Also sounding doable is this idea of Brendan's 30 cents a day tax for all those of us who are rich enough to own some property that would help build this region's local food growing capacity and actual realized food in our hands. That sounds really doable. Great idea. Totally gives me hope. But I am a little sad about our conversation about politics and agency this gap between seeing what might help, knowing where to take those solutions can be hard. Like, where do you take your ideas and solutions? So they're heard, they're acted upon, they're improved upon. You can, you can chat with others. I mean, collaborative thinking, that's where two heads are really better than one. We need to elect people to represent us who listen and empower action. We do have a provincial election going on right at this very moment. We have a municipal one brewing for this fall. Who best to entrust with, with the job of listening and leading, of prioritizing and spending our tax dollars for these pivotal next few years? The scientists say these next few years are an opportunity to make a big impact on how much climate change actually ends up hurting us of really building our capacity to get through this transition, of, of, of putting in place the solutions we know are there. We need to see action. We need smart, science-led, multifaceted action now. So I urge you to imagine the good you want to see in the world. I urge you to ask people you know that, that you think would do this job well to dare to run for election. Promise them you'll keep the hate away. You'll stand up for listening and respecting and helping make good things happen. I urge you to talk about it, to dare to voice your hopes and your fears and your ideas.
And like Brendan says, vote for the world you want to live in. Vote with what you choose to eat and what you choose to say. Vote with what you help make happen. And Brendan said it. Sometimes, to get the macro players to give you the policies and funding you need, you first need to quit complaining and make it happen ourselves. Like Aaron Beagle said last week, drive your bus, get to yes, respect the yes, then keep learning and improving as you do what you set out to do. Quit complaining and make it happen. I don't know what the bus might be for this. Maybe Thunder Bay Master Gardeners or Future Fridays. Maybe the Rotary Club or people who volunteer at Shelter House together. Just a group of people put their heads together. Maybe a bowling team or a knitting club or a book club. There are so many buses that could put their heads and their hearts and their hands together and start asking for yes. Find the way to yes. Figure out the road to yes and get things happening to a sustainable local food system in Thunder Bay? Like, how great would that be? That would be so cool if we could start identifying the land this year and putting our heads together as to what we need to do so we can start planting next year. We could see real progress so fast. just takes a few people, a few votes. Like, vote with what you dare to imagine. That is the Future Food Edition something different this way comes. I'm Heather McLeod, voting with my voice to ease my climate anxiety in Thunder Bay. Thank you for joining me. And thank you to Sleepy G Farm and Brendan Grant for this thought-provoking conversation. So much to chew over. Pardon the pun. I'd like to thank David Gutnick, my friend wading through many pages and sharing wonderful conversations to help shape what became this podcast. I'd like to thank Liam McKay, graphic designer and publicist extraordinaire, for giving this show its look and supporting its online noticeability. Something Different This Way Comes is a very personal project. The opinions are all my own, as is the music. You can find details about the books and podcasts and whatever I mention in these podcasts at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca where you can also find my reference library of hope and writing on my wall. That's uh, clips from the podcast I post for ongoing inspiration. And please join me again every Tuesday this May and June. Miigwech. Something different, this way comes something, something different, something different, something different, this way comes something, something different, something different, something different, this way comes.